Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody here today. So glad you're able to be with us on this fantastic Sunday morning. I hope it feels fantastic to you because it certainly does to me. Happy birthday to America. Hopefully uh, everyone will have a safe and happy fourth. Hopefully you can be with us tonight to celebrate. Uh, and Thank God for the freedoms that we still have in this country. And let's continue every day to pray for our country that uh, goodness will come in the future and not more badness, that repentance and revival will come, that we might continue to have the freedom that we have enjoyed all of our lives. And I'm very grateful to have been born in this country, to live in this country, and I know you are too. Uh, and hey, uh, we are the righteous remnant. Let's continue to serve Jesus the best of our ability, and we know that we'll be blessed one way or the other. That's the truth. God loves us, and uh, therefore we love each other. What a grand thing it is to be able to be together as God's family. Today, we bring our series entitled Change to its conclusion, and I want to just spend a moment to remind us about what we have been talking about. We began by talking about the inevitability of change. Change is a reality of this life. Uh, there will always be changes. If we are going to be grown-ups, if we're going to be mature people, then we have to become people who adapt well to change and are able to, uh, to pivot when circumstances around us change. Change is a process of addition or subtraction. It always is. Uh, it means something has been added to the environment that wasn't there before or something has been subtracted from the environment that was there before or usually a combination of those two things. And change always comes with loss. When something has changed, something is gone. There's less of something that there was before. But change also always comes with gain because when something is lost, something else moves in to take its place. Nature abhors a vacuum. But we have to understand that not all change is good. That the eco is just like the ecosystem around us. You see the picture of the kudzu. Remember we talked about that week one of this series. The ecosystem of this world is very fragile. If you remove uh, an insect or you add a plant uh, that, that isn't native to that particular ecosystem, all kinds of bad things can result from that. And so in the spiritual ecosystem of our lives and of the church and of our world, we've got to always be very sober about change because change can be a blessing, it can be a boon, it can be a correction. It can be the beginning of a pathway toward blessing, but it also can be a cancer that we receive into our lives and into our world that can just grow uncontrollably and destroy things. And so we have to think about change in a responsible way. In our world today, change has become something of an idol. In the political world around us, in these United States, many of our countrymen believe now that change is the greatest good and the only good and that that. We, we need to, excuse me. <coughs> All right, there we go. Ah, needed to change my pace, apparently. 
So, uh, <laughs> all right. So in our world today, though in America, there are many people that have been convinced that change is the greatest good. And if you will take uh, notice, careful notice, of what uh, is being communicated in lots of children's programming, in television and movies, as well as uh, the emphases of education and childhood today, uh, America is training children to grow up and become activists, to be people that, that believe that change is the greatest good and that they always need to challenge the status quo. And I just want to tell you, brothers and sisters, in case you don't know, and I trust that most of us do, that's just about the most foolish thing possible. Yes, change is inevitable. Yes, some things need to change. Some things must change. But there are some things that can never change. And change in and of itself is not necessarily good. It's just as likely to be bad as it is to be good. And so there's nothing to worship about change. There, there's nothing to cling to about change. There, there are things to cling to that should not be changed. But there is, of course, uh, a change that we all must make in our lives. And that is the change that is called repentance. And this is the change that is absolutely required of us by God if we would be saved people. And so <clears throat> the core passage of this series we've read every week has at the core of it, Matthew 4 verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, in the first lesson in this series, we talked about the fact that this is the beginning. This is the start of Jesus' ministry. That now, John, John the baptizer, his role has been fulfilled. He has announced the kingdom. He's paved the way for Jesus. He's now been arrested. Jesus knows that his ministry has come to a close. It's time for him to begin. And the very first thing he says is repent. The very first thing Jesus teaches is you have got to change for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In our world today, I think repentance is a little bit on a back burner, even in the church sometimes. And that's a sad, sad thing because uh, that means to the degree that we resist repentance, to that degree we are resisting the very foundation of Christian teaching, of the, the, the mission and the message of Christ. The mission and the message of Christ starts by saying, you're not right the way that you are naturally. You're not okay the way that you've grown up in this world. You need to be taught. You need to be led. You need to change. You need to repent. But there's a goal of repentance. And I want us to think about this clearly today. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Unexpected blessing. That's nice. All right? There's a goal of repentance. Uh, Jesus also says... A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And I want to ask you just to let that passage, let those words from Jesus sink into your skulls for a few minutes and think about what that is saying to you. Because what it is saying to you and to everyone who would be saved, everyone who would follow Jesus, what it's saying is, is that you are to become like Jesus. That's, that's the goal of repentance. It's not just that you should be sorry. The second week in the series, or the third week rather, we talked about godly sorrow and how important that is in the process of repentance. And it is super important. But I want to make sure we understand as we bring this series to its conclusion that repenting is not just about being sorry for sins that we've committed. It's not just about the works that we've done and correcting our works and being sorry and saying, I'm going to be a better person from now on. Now, I'm not denying that that is a part of repentance, but that's a step in the process leading to the goal. It is not itself the goal. 
It is a step towards the goal. The goal is that we become fully like Jesus. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that God is so cruel that he has given us an obligation that we cannot possibly accomplish? Do you believe that God is so cruel that he has called us to a task that we cannot complete? I just want to ask you that question. Because it's going to reveal how well you understand the heart and nature of God. And our God is love. God's commandments are not burdensome. And there are so many passages that affirm this to us, that teach us that God has never, nor will he ever, ask of us anything that is impossible for us to give. God does not frustrate us with commandments that we cannot obey. If Jesus says the goal of... Are you listening, church? If Jesus says the goal of repentance is that we will become just like Jesus, then it is humanly possible by some means for us to become just like Jesus. And if that's not where you are today, then you're still on the journey. The object of repentance has not yet been achieved, and you still very much have work to do. And brothers and sisters, that means I know that we all have work to do. There are some phrases that we use in our lives more often perhaps than we should. I did the best I could. Well, did you really? Whenever you find yourself saying, well, I did the best I could, it really should be an opportunity for some reflection. And, and, and your conscience ought to be challenging that and questioning that. I believe that your conscience needs to be challenging you and questioning your thought process all the time. That doesn't mean it needs to end by condemning that thought process, but you very much need to be uh, in tune with what you're thinking and saying to yourself because everything that you do, everything that you are, flows from that inner dialogue that you're having in your own mind all day, every day. And so the very ground zero of repentance is to listen to the conversation that's happening inside your own skull because that's how your heart is revealed to you. That's how your motives are revealed to you. That's how your beliefs are revealed to you. And thus you're able to change your beliefs, which will lead you to changing your motives, which will lead you to changing what you say and what you do. And so repentance very much flows from a thought process. So I did the best I could. Did I? Some of us that maybe are more humble might say, well, I could have done better. I know that I could have done better. We could always do better. And that's, well, that's more likely to be true. But uh, I want you to think about how repentance happens. It happens beginning with enlightenment. In other words, we come to realize. Our eyes are open to the truth. That's what begins the process of repentance. Coming in contact with Jesus through the preaching of the gospel, we are enlightened. Our eyes are open. The proverbial scales fall from our eyes, and we realize that we have not been living true life. We've been living a false life. We've been living uh, uh, through the lies of the devil, and he's given us a worldview that is not accurate. And so the way that we've thought about ourselves and the way that we've thought about what's valuable in life and what's good in life, all of that has been skewed. It's been tainted. And so our thought processes are not trustworthy based on our own ways of being and ways of thinking that we would call natural, that we've grown up with. Even if you've grown up with the church, in the church like I have, do not think that the devil has not twisted 
your thoughts in some way and misguided you in some way and led you to think about yourself in inaccurate, untruthful ways because he has. And that's why repentance is a lifelong process. We need to be striving for the goal. It's got to be a realistic goal. We've got to say to ourselves, I must become like Jesus. That's what I must do. And every single day we get up and we try again. And we aim at it again. Because that is always the end goal. We've got to be humble. And humility will lead to the contrite heart. That godly sorrow that says, Lord, I know I am not what I am supposed to be. And I am sorry, but I'm not done. So help me, God, I'm not done. That's the heart of repentance. And it leads to resolution, which leads to work. And you work until you gain, and you will not gain the mastery over sin unless and until it is granted to you through the work of the Holy Spirit. But he will not grant it to you unless you resolve and begin that process of working to transform your way of thinking with your own free will. But brothers and sisters, I want you to recognize that the end goal of being like Jesus means that you are now the master over sin. And that mastering sin is 100% possible in covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Many of you have heard of the law of first mention where when we learn a lot about a concept in the Bible by the first time that concept is ever mentioned in Scripture. And the rule for biblical interpretation is that, it, that you look at the first time in the consecutive way that Scripture was written, the first time a concept is mentioned, you're going to find some real core truths about that that are going to be understood as the background every time that concept is mentioned later in Scripture. And, uh, and it's not going to mean anything different than it did in its first mention in Scripture unless the later passage maybe adds something to it or explains something and it might deepen it in that way. But the first mention of sin, not the first occurrence, that's Genesis 3, but the first mention of the word sin in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4. And this is after Cain and Abel have brought their offerings to God and Cain's has been rejected. And Cain is downcast about it. He's depressed about it. I mean, he's really upset. And, and, and what's going on in Cain's life is really anger. Really deep down, it's anger. But it's resulted in his discouragement. And so God came and he spoke to Cain. And he said the words you see on the screen. He said to Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? I know that's the way you talk to your kids when, you know, maybe they've not gotten a grade they want or... Somebody said something to him mean, and you say to your children, well, let's talk about how your countenance will be lifted up. Uh, but hopefully you understand what that means. You know, your countenance, your disposition, your mood, your frame of mind. And so God is saying to Cain, if you do well, you're going to be happy. If you do well, you're going to be happy. That's from God, man. And it's a very important principle that we ought to embrace in life. God is good. Do you think God wants you to be miserable? Repentance is not about being miserable. Brothers and sisters, repentance is actually about being happy. It's actually about turning from all of the things that make humanity miserable, that we think makes us happy because of the lies of the devil. You've got to understand the truth about these things. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. 
and its desire is for you, that is to rule you. But listen to what God said to Cain. But you must master it. Did God tell Cain something he could not do? Of course not. From the beginning of God's revelation to mankind, he has taught us to turn from sin. And not only to turn from it, but to think, to work, and to master these natures, these drives within us that are so subject to the devil's temptation. From the very beginning, God has told human beings not to be mastered by sin, but to achieve mastery over it. So we ask a question about a concept we've not yet talked about in this series, but a very important one that we dare not overlook, and that is the concept of guilt. And just as Western civilization in our world today has made change into an idol, it's made guilt into an evil. Our culture around us says, don't you be guilty about anything. Don't you feel guilty about any desire you have. Don't you feel guilty about any drive that comes up in your flesh. You do what feels natural to you. You live out your truth and you don't let anybody tell you anything you believe right is wrong. That's our world today. If you go to a clinical psychologist to get counsel and someone who's not counseling from a Christian perspective, I'll tell you what they are counseling from. They're counseling from a macroevolutionary perspective that gives no respect or place to God. And those counselors will tell you, well, uh, how do you feel? And you'll tell them how you feel. And what they'll try to do is teach you how to not feel guilty about the thoughts you already have. That's what they do. That's what they call counseling. What they call counseling is hardening people against their own consciences. That's what they're doing. Do not go to an unchristian counselor to get help with your problems in life. Do not do it. Even if your insurance will not pay for the Christian, get a second job and pay the Christian. You need someone to counsel you in a way that is consistent with the truth, not with the lies of the devil. Man, I just can't emphasize that enough. That's not the purpose of my lesson. But man, that needs to be said, all right? Where does guilt fit, fit in? Well, we know that any time we sinned, we didn't do as well as we could have, right? We know we didn't do as well as we could have. The Bible teaches us that. And guilt is not necessarily a bad thing. But brothers and sisters, we don't need to be burdened down with guilt. Guilt is not what we're supposed to live in. Guilt is supposed to be a moment. Are you listening? Guilt is a moment. Guilt follows enlightenment. Our eyes are open to the truth. Our eyes are open to our failure. Guilt is supposed to enter in in that moment. Our conscience is supposed to accuse us of the wrong that we've done. Now what then wise people will do is not then get like Cain was and get in a state of self-pity and get angry about it and say, how dare you? And well, I did the best I could do. Who are you to judge me? And all these kinds of things that people in the world today do. What we're supposed to do with guilt, the gift of guilt from God, the gift of a conscience that accuses us of sin from God is that we're supposed to then humble ourselves, right? We're supposed to then embrace the, the contrite heart and we're supposed to to come to a place of godly sorrow. And we're supposed to say, God, I, I know that I failed you and I sinned against you and I'm sorry. Please, Lord, would you forgive me? Would you restore me? Would you build me up? And would you help me? And, and when you go through guilt in that way, as a gift from God, a blessing to God, to lead you to a better place, not for you to live in a state of guilt, 
then guilt accomplishes its good God-given purpose and you're able to actually change. Without guilt, you would be ruined and dead and headed for the grave and for hell with no hope at all. Do not malign guilt. Guilt is a blessing from God. It's an essential part of coming to a state of repentance. Listen, just because it could have been done better doesn't mean that you could have done it better then, right? I've kind of hammered myself all of my life about my past sins, which have been many, about the fact that so many occasions in my life, I knew better than what I was doing, and I certainly could have done better than what I did. But my weakness was a problem in those circumstances that I could not yet then overcome. God didn't write me off. God didn't go ahead and snuff my life out, send me to the waiting place for hell. He's been patient with me because he understands our weakness. God does. He knows we're weak. He's not ignorant of that at all. Yes, technically, I could have done better. But in that moment, I wasn't able to, all right? And so that's not an excuse for anything, but I just want to speak to those, especially in the auditorium this morning, that are like me, that are prone to guilt, to a conscience that just, just seeks you, pursues you, just hammers you because of things you've done. Believe me, if that's you, I can relate to that because that's me. That's me too. But i got to let go of that. And understand, it's, with God, it's not about how well I have done in the past or how poorly, which is the greater reality. With God, it's what I'm going to do about that now and how that's going to affect the future. And so as we bring our thoughts on repentance to the culmination in this series, my hope is that we're all going to leave this series with that. It's not about the past. It's not about how badly I've done. It's about what I'm going to do in my relationship with God about that right now. And how that's going to help me moving forward to serve him in the way that leads to me being just like Jesus. Because if you know better now, you're accountable to do better now. Forget the past. Let it be in the past. You see, guilt is good if it's used well. Jesus said in John 9, 41, if you were blind, he speaks to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see your guilt remains. In other words, they said, Jesus, we don't need your help. We don't want your help. We don't like your teaching. Their guilt did not do in their lives what it was supposed to do. That's kind of the core of our thoughts this morning, and we're going to come back to a very important verse in this passage before we're done. But I'm going to ask you to read with me, if you would, 1 Corinthians 10, the first 13 verses. That's page 1018 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, writes, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, the first three verses here quickly are designed to show us that there really is very little difference between us and our ancient brethren in Israel. They lived before the cross looking forward to the cross. And everything they were doing was ultimately about the cross and what God would accomplish in it. We as Christians, everything we're doing looks back to the cross. Our whole way of life is about what Jesus has accomplished into the cross. 
They were baptized into Moses passing through the Red Sea, the walls of water on both sides, and God's Spirit in the cloud going over them. We're baptized in a baptistry or a lake or a river or wherever it is we're baptized into Christ. And we eat the same spiritual food just as they ate the same spiritual food. It was all about Jesus. Does that make sense? Now we get to verse 4. Uh, let's see, or verse 5. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these, became, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play about the golden calf situation. Verse 8. Now let us, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Notice now, Christians, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Amen. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow. Listen, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Now, brothers and sisters, I've already said in this series more than once that you cannot accomplish the goals of repentance without the help of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do it. But don't make the mistakes of some of our friends out there in Christendom who sit around on their hands, so to speak, and wait to move until they feel like the Spirit is somehow miraculously motivating them to go. That's not what these passages are calling us to do. You've got to understand that all of these commandments we are reading are written to Christians who have been baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, Acts 2.38, and have therefore received the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.39. If you've come out of the waters of baptism, you already have the help of the Holy Spirit. And now, listen, it's not about earning your way to heaven. I hope you know that. But now it is your own free will responsibility to obey Jesus. It is your responsibility to obey the commandments in Scripture of your own free will. And the Holy Spirit will help you, but not without your choice. You're already empowered to do it. If you will only do it. Are you hearing me? We have already been empowered through the Holy Spirit to overcome sin in our lives to the point of mastery if we will. Thus the nature of the great warning of this passage to us. Listen, according to the research of Anders Ericsson, it takes 10,000 hours of deliberate practice on average to master a trade 
or discipline. In other words, if you want to become a master silversmith, I know some of you have talked about a career change that you'd like to make and thinking maybe silversmith would be the way to go. I imagine if you do well at it, you can probably make a good living as a master silversmith. But if you want to become a master, now you can become proficient with less hours. But if you really want to become a master silversmith, depending on your level of talent, natural talent, it's going to take you somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to get there. So why is it that so many Christians have not yet mastered sin? Might it be that there's just too little deliberate practice going on? I just submit that for your consideration. But you know what is true about master silversmiths? Master potters, master carpenters, master medical professionals, whatever it is that you do. They still make mistakes, don't they? I enjoy watching potters make pottery. That's just one of my things. I'll watch YouTube videos of, of potters making their pottery. And I've watched masters mess up a vessel on the wheel. The Bible talks about that, by the way. You know what? They just get that lump back in place and they start over and the end result is going to be a masterpiece. Listen, even, even if any one of us or any group of us in here really does reach a point of just of such perfect imitation of Jesus that, that we could honestly say, now I don't believe any of us have arrived here, nor do I think you're going to in this life, okay? Let me make that clear. But if one of us were to make it to this place where we have, have so perfected the imitation of Christ that we've mastered sin... For all practical purposes, we're still going to make mistakes just like the master potter does on the wheel. What that serves to do is to enlighten us to just how worthy Jesus truly is, not only of our loyalty and obedience, but of our worship, of our complete adoration, of our complete love. Because he is the master over sin. And there really is no other. Now, do you remember the aim of repentance? A disciple is not above his teacher. And you and I will never be above our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be just like Jesus. And I hope that you do too. Because that's what he died to enable. That's what he died to make possible. And so true repentance is about being a good person. Jesus is the only one. So if I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to join Jesus in his agenda. Listen, if you're a good person, you're seeking the greatest good in the best ways for the largest number and the longest time. That's what good people do. But if you can't accomplish that, and as you are now, you cannot. If you cannot accomplish that, but someone else can. Oh, and by the way, Jesus can. Are you hearing me? Then what you do is you stop pursuing your own agenda and you start pursuing his. Does that make sense? 
You see, if I'm trying to be good, but I'm failing at it because I'm finding that my mind isn't right and my body isn't right or whatever I'm doing is not, well, it's not working perfectly at least. I'm trying to be good, but then I'm enlightened. My eyes are open. I, I see the truth. I see this man. I see the Son of God. I see Jesus, and I realize he's perfectly good. And his agenda is seeking the greatest good in the best ways for the largest number in the longest time. I can't do it, but he can. Am I good? Am I good? The answer to that question will be apparent by whether I choose to keep on living my imperfect and evil life or whether I say my life is over. I'm all about Jesus. It's about his agenda. It's about his mission. It's about his life. From now on, I belong to his. From now on, I might as well be his slave because he's good and I'm not, and I want to be good, so I'm going to do what he wants me to do, not what I want to do. Brothers and sisters, that is what the Bible calls conversion. You lose yourself in Jesus and you try to live his life from now on. And so we've talked about in this series, every week we've had the scripture reading about how Jesus started his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the very second thing that he taught to the audience that came around him so early in his ministry is this, Luke 9 beginning in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Daily, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, whoever says, my agenda is evil, I renounce it. Jesus' agenda is the only one that's good. I embrace it. I'm his. Let's talk very briefly in a way that will help you answer the question, whose life are you living? You know, the beginning of repentance is almost always about moral failures. I'm so sorry I told that lie. I'm so sorry I said that bad word. I'm so sorry I told that dirty joke. I'm so sorry I let my temper get the best of me and I said a hurtful thing. I'm so sorry, sorry I struck you, my friend. I'm so sorry I lusted in the way that I did. I'm sorry about the million moral failures that have characterized my life over the years of it so far. I'm so sorry about those things. And brothers and sisters, that's a great way to start, but it's not going to get you to the full imitation of Christ. You've got to get a little deeper into your own thought world to get there. And as you grow in Christ, you begin to realize that the motives, there are motives that have driven those moral failures, jealousy of your fellow man, envy, that those things have led to hatred and to pride and to the spirit of competition. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you in life. These are things that come from the devil, not from God. And you say, why am I motivated in these wicked ways? And you explore deeper and you realize it's because of my own weakness. I'm afraid of what I don't know. I'm enslaved to my passions and desires and it's leading me to, to fear my fellow man and to be afraid that I won't have enough of the things that I need in life and that's led me to rivalry. But that's not the end of it. You've got to go deeper. You've got to go deeper in exploring what makes you tick. You've got to realize all this flows from the desires of the flesh, which are not inherently evil, but they're just so easily misguided. And if you are worshiping yourself 
you will never be able to resist them. Not ever. You know what? Even that is not on solid ground. Because why would a sinner ever worship him or herself? Only because of unbelief. Only because you don't trust God. And as you explore the depths of your soul, you will come to realize that the sin of all sins is the sin of unbelief. And it is only unbelief that can keep you from succeeding in obtaining the aim of repentance. If you will only believe. If you will just trust your God. You can do more than you ever conceived as possible. You can overcome anything. Anything. Repentance is complete. And mastery over sin is total. When we finally learn to believe God. So I ask, you, ask us all today. Stop trusting yourself. Start trusting God. Don't make any more excuses. Ruthlessly rid your life of every encumbrance and stronghold of the enemy while resisting temptations with your all. And finally, and this is really the clincher, give Jesus your total loyalty in everything. Now, I told you I'd come back. This little verse that we read from 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. That's what Paul is saying. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. doesn't matter if you're 90 years old. You're still God's little baby. He loves you. He's just trying to help you learn to walk. And if you will trust him, he'll never leave you. He'll never abandon you. He will make you able to be just like your big brother Jesus. That's the lesson. I hope you'll embrace it. This morning, if you're subject to the gospel's invitation, if you need to give your life to Jesus for the first time, you can confess your faith in him. Waters are ready. We'll baptize you into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This morning, if you're a baptized believer that needs the prayers of this church, the front pews are open. Don't delay. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.